podcasting from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, known as the City of Bridges. This is Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, conversations of influence and change. I am your host, Christy Knights, C-suite executive coach, psychotherapist, professional speaker, and best-selling author, the revolutionary leader in business and life. Thank you for joining us. I am so grateful for you and your willingness to share time and space. Today, I am joined by a hero, a person who has lived through difficulties in life then rose to a place of joy and service to others. In true hero form, our guest will share his story authentically so others may know they are not alone. Meet Robert Galinsky. Let me share with you just a little bit about Robert before we get started with our interview. Robert Galinsky is the founder of GalinskyCoaching.com, is head speaker coach to TEDx Teen and TEDx Fulton Street, works with teenagers at Rikers Island Jail and jails and prisons throughout New York State via the organization Literacy for Incarcerated Teens, and also teaches at Getting Out, Staying Out, a reentry program for formerly incarcerated young men. He is also the founder of the Galinsky Volunteer Vanguard, where he gathers folks to take on missions at prisons and jails throughout New York City. Robert Galinsky is proud to be a founding member of the We Are Family Foundation's Three Dot Dash Just Peace Summit, and his work as an activist and artist have been chronicled in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Advertising Age, and on NPR. The View, and many more media outlets. Galinsky made his off-Broadway debut at Cherry Lane Theater as both a playwright and an actor in the fall of 2017 with his one-person play, The Bench, A Homeless Love Story. The show also marks the New York directorial debut of J.O. Sanders and is presented by Golden Globe-nominated Chris Noth, Drama Desk, OB, Olivier Award winner Barry Shabaka Henley, and is produced by Tony Award winning producer Terry Schnuck. If you enjoy the work of Anna DeBear Smith or Humans of New York, you are in for a treat. Theater is easy. Welcome, Robert. It is great to have you today on the show. This is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So share with me a little bit, Robert, about your story. Today, we are going to get deep and personal. So sit back, audience. We've got a good one for you. So when did you begin to, to be drawn to just the more difficult people in life, the more challenging people? Really, it's a super cool question. It actually triggers me to speak about when, my, when I was about 11 years old, 10 years old, my mom had an accident a car accident, and she was um, in the hospital. And because my dad worked very long hours, he owned a business, I would end up, while she was in the hospital, I would end up going to school an hour early. That was the only way for me to get there. I'd have to leave with him and then go to school. Mm. So in that time, I would arrive an hour early. I would go to the special education class that was in our school. Luckily, Charles Wright Elementary School in Wethersfield, Connecticut was fairly progressive and had a um, pre-K special education class. And so I would go there and I would play with these little kids who were a mixed assortment of special needs from Down syndrome to physically disabled 
um, all types of conditions that they were in. And I got hooked. I got hooked that that one hour before school every day continued on and it's taken me to where I am today. But that was the beginning of it. My mom wasn't uh, around to get me off to school. So when I got off to school and I just was drawn to these young, young people. Wow. So whenever you're that young needing to get off to school on your own, what were some of the, the fears that you had at that time? Um, well, I, you know, I was afraid that one, I was afraid with my mom come back home out of the hospital because she was very yeah. ill and she did. So that was great. Um, mm-hmm. and she's still alive today. She's 89 years old. I just saw her yesterday. She's brilliant. Yeah. Um, some of the fears, you know, were the, were, were that I had four brothers and a great father. So mm-hmm. big family. So I had a lot of support <clears throat> and, um, yeah, I, I can't even really recall back then what the fears were, you know, just the usual things that a 10, 11 year old kid might go through. Sure, sure. And I think that we see that oftentimes with children who have parents that go through an illness or are chronically ill, that level of anxiety that's that's low in terms of that fear of, yeah. will they back? you know, will they get sick again? Did she remain healthy? Yes. Did she, get yes. Sick? she recovered. She recovered and she remained healthy. She's still healthy to this day. Um, and, uh, I, from that point on though, I think there was something triggered in me and I don't know if it was some great design that, that got me there early so I could meet these young, um, children in need, or if it just was a complete spontaneous moment. But from that moment on, I was hooked on a couple things. I think just totally being interested in the other, so to speak, or different from me. Um, just really hooked on all of the cool idiosyncrasies that mm-hmm. people who have special needs have. And then also the great feeling in my heart of the satisfaction of just walking away and feeling like I've, I've done something, I've completed something. And the, the thing I've learned since then is not to worry about the uh, impact, not to worry about will there be something that comes from my efforts because there's no predicting if there will be. Uh, I, I have the philosophy of just planting the seeds, doing my best at connecting with people and planting those seeds. And they usually grow into something beautiful and wonderful and make um, changes in the world. So I have faith in that. But otherwise, I, I know that I can't be concerned with, did they get it? Will they, will they go on and do great things now? Will there be great change? Because there's so many variables involved. All I can do is expose people to that love and hope that it goes somewhere. Yes. You know, at that young of age, oftentimes people with special needs um, ostracized and made fun of. Was there an, an experience that you can recall that others were making fun of them, but you stepped in? Well, I have to admit, uh, that happened a lot. And yes, I would step in. Um, but as I said, <clears throat> I have to admit, I actually went through a period where by around eighth grade, I was kind of a bully. Mm, and okay. uh, I was, uh, to certain people, I was a bully and was very mean like any kid can be. So I wasn't <clears throat> virtuous and perfect by any means uh, yeah. I have since, because of Facebook, been able to reach out to a couple of those people that I was very specifically wrong to back then yeah. and have apologized. And uh, one person said, I don't even remember. Huh. I don't know why you're stressing. Okay. And another person said, yeah, you were awful to me. You were terrible. Mm-hmm. And you made my eighth grade a, a nightmare. Wow. Uh, 
but we were kids and I forgive you and I thank you for reaching out to me. Good. Could so, you share with our audience, because it's always a question, what led to those bullying type of behaviors? What were you experiencing? I think it was me being feeling insufficient myself. I feel like it was um, at the time I was going through a very terrible time with my father. My father was um, going through something awful at work and with his marriage. And I happened to be in those teenage years where and I was a prankster, so I was the guy who was, you know, constantly getting calls home to my family, my parents about Robert did this today, and Robert did that today, and Robert, you know, and not good Robert did this, but yes. bad Robert. <laughs> right. And so my father going through the time he was going through, and this leads to some of the other issues we might talk about, but he was undiagnosed as a manic depressive, and okay. he would take out his frustrations on me physically. So I, in turn, would then frustrated and feeling less than a, a whole would go to school. And if the moment arose with a couple of these particular people, it wasn't like I was known as a bully. I was more known as a kind class clown, but I somehow zeroed in on a couple of people mm-hmm. and a couple other friends of mine zeroed in on them. And so it was easy to take, I think, take out my frustrations and what I was getting at home um, onto somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. So at that time, whenever things would happen at home with dad, how did your brothers and your mom react? So I have four brothers, three older, one younger. So the one younger, uh, he got a tiny bit of that energy, but he was, because he was younger, I mean, he's only like six years old, five years old. My dad was not a monster. He was just spontaneously acting out. Uh, So he really, at that time, wasn't really... uh, focusing any of that negative energy on my, my brother physically. And my three older brothers, two of them were already out of the house in college. And one of them, again, one of them actually wrote a letter to me years ago, about a nine page letter of apology that I didn't come in and help you when you needed it. When my, when dad was being the way he was with you, I did not. And I could hear it from the next room. I would lock my door and turn the music louder. So I, in turn, much like the other person who said, I don't even remember, I said, look, you've been harboring all this guilt for years. I never thought of you as somebody who should have come to intercede or interfere. I never thought of you as somebody who was lacking in that, that um, response to what was going on. Mm. Uh, I thought he's safe. He's in the other room. That's all good. Okay. It was a protective mechanism yeah. within, within you. What about mom? Um, I think I think mom disconnected herself from it. We had a fairly large house, so I guess I, I'm, this is a blurry part because everybody that I've talked to about this over over the years, and it wasn't easy. I mean, it feels it may feel easy for me to speak about it now, but it's been many years of thinking, a little bit of therapy, a lot of talking and sharing. That's got me to the point where I'm like, you know what? I better put it on the table when someone like um, Christy calls and wants to empower other people so that I'm not holding back so that anybody who might hear this and be going through this knows that they're not alone. Um, so I don't know. My, I, I, it's always been sort of a mystery. I think sometimes my mom wasn't home and sometimes my mom um, might've shut her door as well and let it go or just didn't hear it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, again, I, and I've never held her accountable in that way either. It was probably, and this took me a long time to get to this place, the, my father physically beating me um, 
was probably the, one of the best things that ever happened to me. Mm, and we'll get to it. Wow. That's, you know, it, it taught me that things are not what they seem. We lived in a beautiful little cul-de-sac, mm. a suburban town. We had a little forest behind us. There was nature, love, joy. And for that about two and a half year period, it was for me anyway, it was pure terror and hell inside that house. And so I realized that you, that at that point, um, nothing really is what it seems until you, you know, go under that surface yes. and make it through the first level of what you're seeing. And because of that, um, I feel like it was a blessing that I went through what I went through because I, I see the world now in a way that I would probably would not have seen it otherwise. Yes. During those times, we know that you acted out at school, but how did you cope at home? I think I, again, in turn, bullied one of my brothers. I was not necessarily so nice to him during that time. And I think I, I think I continued to act out and, and get in trouble, and it sort of created a pattern yeah. uh, for me where I would, uh, you know, I would expect to step outside the boundaries of what was supposedly normal or, or appropriate, rather, and uh, knew that I was going to get a little, a little punishment for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very stressful, especially at such a young age. Do you remember yeah. experiencing anything like anxiety or depression or sadness during that time? At the time, uh, sadness, yes. And I did not uh, want to, I, I compensated by being funny, which mm. I think a lot of people do. And yep. I think you'll hear a lot of successful comedians talk about that as well. So I was funny and cheerful and bright. And I think also because of what I went through, I was even more eager to lend a hand to people in need. Again, seeing what I was going through and being what I was in. I never, and up to this day, I've never thought of when you get to the really dark part of thinking or the, or the part of thinking that uh, is dangerous, suicide. I've never thought of suicide, but I okay. had often thought of not wanting to be alive. Mm, yes. And I, I know for me, there's a clear distinction. I never planned. I never planned on how to do it or, or put together a, uh, any action. I never accidentally, subconsciously right. tried to do anything. But the depression I had for many, many years was based around the phrase, I wish I was not alive. I wish a car would jump the curb and take me away. I'd read the newspaper about somebody getting hit by lightning and being killed, and I'd be jealous. I'd be like, why, what, why couldn't that be me? Okay. Yeah. And that is often the case, you know, with those who are actively suicidal in their thoughts is they don't truly want to die. They just want to get out of the situation that they have been in. Um, You know, as a a young child, I had my own difficulties and experiences that I share in my book and I was known as the class clown too Uh Um, at at a private school. So I can tell you numerous times at that time I was spanked. As a principal, right? Bent over that desk and spanked um, as the class clown. (laughs) Because humor can be such a way to, for me, it was acceptance, but also to cope with the pain, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Mm, Yeah. So as you were getting older and you experienced the acting out around eighth grade, um, how did it continue to escalate for you? At what point did it stop? Well, I'm still acting out. I followed (laughs) it into a one-person show. Uh, found a healthy way to act out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I feel like my healthy ways of acting out now are the volunteering, the the going into the jails and, and 
connecting with young people who are having issues also through TEDx teen connecting mm-hmm. with people, young people who are, I think they're, they're all called exceptional and brilliant and smart because they've invented something or they're creating a new path that has yet to be cut. But I also feel like that's their way of compensating for something that went down in their life or mm-hmm. continues to go down in their life that, that they funnel into something again to empower others. As we look at eighth grade, yeah. and what did it look like between eighth grade and the next you know, few years? Talk us through what life was like. It was split because my dad was, is an awesome guy. He's a beautiful soul. And, and uh, he um, loved me more than he didn't mm. love me. He treated me kindly with beauty and joy way more than he didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so through high school, I, again, was compensating as a class clown. I played high school football and I wrestled. And I really feel like high school football was another outlet for me to be very violent, but not um, breaking any laws. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I put the helmet on and I was one of the smallest players on the team, but I was one of the more ferocious players on the team. And know for a fact now, looking back on it, that that was definitely a way for me to express a lot of the violence I was experiencing mm, yes. and as an outlet, it allowed me to, um, you know, put it on somebody else. Yes. Okay. Through, through the, the norms of, um, American football. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. So it was a, it, it, it was a good ex- way to express and get that rage out. And then I also was, I didn't do any drugs in high school because I was, uh, an athlete. Yes. Good. It's when I went to college that then I even was unleashed further because uh, I lived away from home and I spent the first two years doing nothing but partying and partying and mm. partying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So in, in high school, were you ever teased for being the small one? A little bit, but I had three older brothers who had gone through high school. Huh. So the name, you know, Galinsky, one of the Galinsky boys coming through yeah. high school. So, and those, these, these three older brothers were not like me in that they were not as self-destructive. Uh, okay. Yes. Or, yes. or at least openly self-destructive so that when I came to high school, there was already a repetition, a reputation of the Galinsky's, the Galinsky brothers mm. are, you know, good, sound, solid people. Yes. Um, pretty smart, decent athletes. Mm-hmm. And they paved a good way for me. And I, in turn, destroyed that path <laughs> for my younger brother. Awesome. Awesome. So eighth grade, not feeling enough high school, participating in sports. Yep. Did you begin to feel like your self-confidence was, was elevating? Were you still struggling with it at that point? My self-confidence was always pretty high. It was my self-love that was the issue. Ooh, I like that distinction. Thank yeah, you. You just, your question called for that distinction. I, yeah. I like that. Can you flush that out for just a minute for us? Yeah, sure. Because I feel like self-confidence wise, I would, you know, part of it was masked with the humor and making jokes and finding yeah. humor in situations. But I was pretty confident. Uh, people liked me. I was smart and fun. So in that respect, I felt pretty, pretty good, you know? Um, okay. I then, you know, there was a couple of people that bullied me as well, uh, but otherwise pretty strong. It was the self-love that, and I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back on it, it was the self-love where I was um, lacking because I wasn't really deep down inside taking care of myself. Everything was pretty much a mask 
tears of a clown kind of thing. Yes, I love that. That is really powerful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that distinction. Well, thank you. Releasing that aggression through high yep. school, you graduate and you head to college. Where did you go to college? I went to Western Connecticut State University. Okay. And I goofed off for two full years. Yes. <laughs> and just just to be real, I apply. I, you know, I went. To, the dean called me into her office, and by this time, we were on a first name basis. Okay. And not for all the right reasons. And she said, I see you're going to come back here for your junior year in the fall. This was the spring of my sophomore year. I said, yes. She said, well, if you reapply, you're going to be expelled. But if you transfer, nobody will know the difference. Mm, So I said, thank you very much for that second chance. I will begin the process of transferring colleges. So I went to Southern Connecticut State University. Mm-hmm. and got a bit more serious and studied special education there. Mm. Found that, like, okay, what I did back when I was, you know, 10 years old is actually something meaningful me, to me now, nine years, 10 years later. Yeah. So there I um, studied special education and continued a little bit of my uh, aggressive release through rugby, played rugby there. Very cool. And then... Um, got involved in a theater company off campus. Okay. So those first two years before you had that transfer, many people, many kids act out in college. That's not unusual to go and party. Um, Clearly you were partying excessively. Yes. What was your mood and your, and your mental state like during those two years? I think it was totally ignorant. Okay. It was very ignorant. I was ignorant of the pain I was in. I was not dealing with it. I smoked cannabis almost every single, every single day, which I hadn't done in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had tried all other kinds of um, drugs that were being offered by a couple of kids that had some incredibly strong connections to drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I partied. I got in trouble for a lot of things in college. It, it escalated to the point where I, you know, I can't believe I'm confessing all of this stuff to the world here. I appreciate your honesty. I'm about to, I'm like, you a revolutionary leader, Robert. There's a voice in my head saying, stop. But I, I, everything escalated from first I was on probation, then I was on academic probation, then I was on campus probation, then I wasn't. Then I got to the point where I could only go on campus to take classes. I was not allowed on campus for any other reason because of the crazy stuff that we were doing. Mm-hmm. The worst things we ever did, we never got caught for, thankfully. But the things we did get caught for were still pretty bad. And it got to the point where that, you know, the dean called me in and said, you want to come back? You're expelled. That's it. Right. So the choices that you made that you didn't get caught for, how did they affect you emotionally? I feel like emotionally, like the phrase, I dodged a bullet every time. Um, They made me feel, those moments made me feel like they were, they were more reflective. The fact that I didn't get caught and I, I, went through the process in my own mind of what would have happened if I did. And boy, why did I do what I did? That was terrible. So many bad consequences could have come from what I did, not for me even, but for other people. Um, And so it was really in a way, I think it was powerful because it was self-reflective. And I, although I still kept making these same poor decisions, I um, was getting, some clarity on who I was, mm. even though I was still out of control. 
Right, right. I can hear that moral compass was present at a time when identity is forming. Yes. Wow. Thank you. Yes. Yet you continue to give in to that yes. voice, right? Which, is, which to me, I also felt as, again, looking back, I felt it was sort of a slower way of suicide. Yes. It was sort of a slower way of trying to get that lightning to hit me. You know, mm, not, yeah. not, not intentionally myself, but really intentionally. Right, right. Any guilt, shame, or remorse as you look back on those things? Just, I, I just in a few occasions, a few, few examples of yes. things that I, or ways I behave to other people, mm. you know, that, that make me feel that way. But overall, the things I did, again, Mo- the majority, the vast majority of things that I did that were outside the lines were never harmful to other people. Mm. You know, I wasn't mugging people. I wasn't jumping people. I wasn't stealing purses. They were stupid things that were done that I did that could have had bad and worse consequences than they did. So looking back and feeling at that remorse, it's more about, for me, wasted time, wasted energy. You know, I truly believe that each life experience, whether it was a poor choice or something we're proud of, is a life lesson. Absolutely. It is part of the fabric of our being that makes us who we are today and a place of shame-free as we share it with others so that others grow, right? And we give back and serve just like you are doing today. And I'm just grateful for you being willing to share share these moments because I know it's not easy. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So you transfer then to another college and obviously a bit more serious. We chose, you know, special education. Right. Um, And, you know, let's not, let's bridge that gap. Let's not leap over the work that you did. So from those two years to becoming a, a bit more serious, how did you begin to cope with life in a different way? I knew that I needed to give myself another chance because I was like, this woman gave me a chance I, I left that school fairly unscathed and I needed to address some of the BS that I was giving myself. Yes. And the opportunity at Southern was great because they had a very, they have a very acclaimed special education department. Mm. That's one of the focuses of that university. Okay. So I then fell into this or walked into this world and was like, Oh wow. I didn't know that there were so many other people passionate this way. I didn't know there was so much material to be looked at. So in that respect, it was, it was awesome to just find that there. Absolutely. Absolutely. How did your parents handle you transferring and the reasons you transferred? Well, my dad passed away uh, about uh, in 99. So my dad never knew all of this stuff. Uh, okay. How old all were you then? Pardon me? How old were you then? When he passed away? Yes. Uh, 99, that's what, 18, 19 years ago? Uh, I was 32. Okay. 32. Yes. My oldest brother would come to the college when I needed my dad to come there. Yes. And he would play my dad. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and he would, um, so that way my dad wouldn't kill me. Yes. Yes. Uh, what older brothers are for. Yeah. So my dad wouldn't tear my head off. My oldest brother came and I, I'm always thankful for him for doing that. Um, Absolutely. 
my mom over the years started to learn some of this stuff. And she, my dad and my mom, we had a powwow when I was 26 that we could talk about at some point, but I, we, where I put everything on the table with them about what, what went down in my childhood. Yeah. So they got to address it and year, you know, my dad ended up writing me a, a very powerful apology. Wow. And the rest of our lives together were um, unencumbered by that experience anymore. Very liberating and wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Very courageous. Yes. I was, I was blown away. Right. Uh, and like I said, also, there was a certain point around my mid-20s where I was like, why am I letting two of the 26 years of my life color my existence? There were 24 years of wonderful joy with my family and my father. There was two years of hell. And I was like, why am I letting that two years be the, the way I express out of? Okay. And I, I consciously made a shift to like say, you know, why don't I focus on the good 24 full years instead of these two? They just became too big for me. And that changed a lot as well. Absolutely. How did you make that mind shift? That's often a challenge for people. I got, I got disgusted and exhausted with being in pain. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And that's just what, that's what came out of my, one of my lowest moments was like, you can continue to make the center of who you are the hell of those two years, or you can look at the other 24 years and put as much weight or more on those 24 years and realize that life cannot be, doesn't have to be as painful and ugly. Good. And how did you begin then to deal with, you know, any sadness or depression or anxiety that you may experience? Well, the first thing I did was I had, I called, asked for that meeting with my mom and my dad. Yes. That's the first thing I did. She And, you know, they both got on the phone and I was at college. I said, we got to talk. I had a dream last night and I I buried a screwdriver in your temple, Uh, dad, in my dream. I woke up soaking wet in tears. We have to talk. And my mom, first words out of her mouth, do we really have to? (sighs) And I said, yes, we really have to. So I went home for a weekend from college. She she baked lasagna. So Mm. we had tons of food. She's an Italian woman, so she made a lot of food. We sat at the kitchen table for the whole weekend, and I let him sort of have it and tell him what, what happened. And constantly throughout, he would say, I did that. I don't even remember that. I did that. Okay. And that's some things he did remember, and he was apologetic for. And, and at one point, she was like, you know, yeah, you did. And then I looked at her, and I said, well you didn't do what he did, but you didn't stop what he did. You've got to recognize that as well. Yes. Uh, and she did. And she did. She owned it. So we all ended up owning our, mm. our actions. And, and, and it was great. I went back to school about 16,000 pounds lighter. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a major shift for me. I still mm-hmm. was a goofball and still did some, you know, I didn't just suddenly become an angel and I'm still yeah. not an angel. Yes. Uh, but it did clear up so much. And then a week later, I got a letter from him in the mail, which I still have. Wow. And he, I think, paraphrasing, but very specifically, one of the lines was, I, most of my actions were spontaneous and without thought. And mm-hmm. I did not know the irreparable damage that they would cause you. I'm sorry. If you can forgive me, forgive me. Mm. Very pivotal in your life. For healing. 
Yeah. Just that acknowledgement, the validation of the pain to be able yeah. to move forward. Begin yes. to love yourself again. Yep. It's hard to talk about, isn't it? Yep. But you're making it easy. Thank you. Good. Easier. What was it like then to lose dad knowing that the relationship had been repaired? It was great. My dad and I, you know, he was even through the tough times, he was still a good dad. He was, it was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, and, and he's right. It was spontaneous. It wasn't like he planned to do things. He just he lost his cool undiagnosed with the, his condition and yes. you know, late, later in life he got medication and therapy mm-hmm. and treatment and it was a different different way for him um and the, those last years with him were were awesome you know all of the awesomeness that was there with the tinge of that other pain that pain was now i guess compartmentalized or something mm-hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't as effervescent as it had been it wasn't as active as it always had been yes. it was just part of what we what we went through and as we both acknowledged it, it was just a part of our reality and not as painful. Yeah, absolutely. Through that healing and forgiveness was the ability to create that new brain path of freedom to yeah. be in a relationship with him without burden. Exactly. What do you miss the most about dad? A couple of things. I miss his hugs. He's an, was an awesome hugger. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I miss being able to uh, show him what I'm doing now because I know he'd be so proud and proud, but also just enjoy it. He, he loved watching me perform. And uh, so I, I miss the fact that I don't get to share with him like I do with my mom, which is, which is great. Mm. The things I'm going through right now that are challenging, but also positive. Yes. Uh, those are the things I miss the most. Yeah. What are some of the characteristics of dad that, you possess. All right. So my dad, <laughs> my dad was, uh, the town throughout his career, uh, mm-hmm. was a pharmacist, notary, public town manager, deputy mayor, chairman of the board of education. Wow. Of the peace. Um, he was a science teacher, a math teacher. So my mm-hmm. dad was always in, in a, a civic minded, uh, way. He was always giving. Yes. Uh, so I feel like that's part of, the behavioral DNA in my family, my, my mom's side as well. There's a ton of teachers and principals and mm. my, my dad's sister. Uh, when I go to prison, I just realized this two days ago that last visit to, to jail, I just sat and played cards and reread aloud um, from this book by Maddie J.T. The Panic. And um, I realized that my aunt, my aunt, my dad's sister who I loved, she uh, did the same thing in her own way. She read for five years, three times a week. She would visit a man who was blinded and lost his arms and legs in Vietnam. Wow. And she would read to him. And it just hit me as I left jail the other day. I was like, this is very similar to that. So I feel like those apples have not fallen far from the tree. Absolutely. Ah, oh, beautiful. So share with us, you know, what led you jail from the day i was in you know leaving for school early as a 10 year old to to that to today yes uh it's the same thing it's Mm. the same exact thing it's i think now it's a little bit more political and socially Mm. aware for me it's uh people those kids are forgotten people in jail in general are forgotten and we have this punitive mindset where 
just lock them up. They did wrong, put them in jail. And what, until somebody's family member goes into jail, does anybody realize, or prison, does anybody realize how dysfunctional it is and how <clears throat> unproductive the system is? Mm, yeah. So the, real, the, the specific trigger was a mentor of mine, Jamal Joseph. He's a brilliant man, Jamal Joseph. He's an Oscar-nominated songwriter. He did nine and a half years in prison. He was a Black Panther. Mm. And I read one of his tweets a few years ago where he was going to make a commencement speech to um, a boy's grad, high school graduation in, in prison. Mm. And I blew my mind. I was like, I thought I knew everything. What? Mm. High school commencement speech in prison? <laughs> and, I, and to me, those are my heroes. That, mm. The guy like Jamal is a hero to me. He, That's he, right. Most people don't want to go. Uh, and give love and attention to the people that we've discarded or forgotten. Yes. And so I called him up and I said, wait, tell me about this. How this happened? What's going on? And he mentioned this organization, Literacy for Incarcerated Teens. He said they, they called me and because I have a book, they asked me to come read for my book. And so I went and did it. So I called Literacy for Incarcerated Teens and I pitched a workshop uh-huh. and they were open to it. And Literacy for Incarcerated Teens is an incredibly small, powerful organization run by an, a wonderful group of retired librarians. And one, another thing I've learned is <laughs> don't mess with librarians. That is awesome. <laughs> tough, tough mutter. You're talking yes. about librarians. That's right. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> so the, uh, so they, we, I pitched the workshop. And we went and did one. It, it worked. It was clumsy at first, but it worked. And mm-hmm. since then, I've been off and running. Oh, that's amazing. Now, is that a nonprofit? Yes. Very it's a good. Nonprofit. Okay. And uh, the, goal of, the goal primarily is to create and maintain libraries for teenagers while they're incarcerated or detained. Yes. Because the institutions themselves are, are so overwhelmed with things to do and or don't care that those libraries are either not present mm-hmm. and they're, or they're decrepit and uh, recidivism, one of the highest causes of recidivism is illiteracy. Okay. So get kids reading and feeling good about themselves and learning and hopefully they stay away up from trouble. I did not realize that literacy was part of the recidivism rate, the reason. Yes, it's one of the main causes. Mm, it's interesting. Okay. Sort of what you were talking about when we were talking about self-esteem. You know, if you can't read, yeah. then there's so many things you're, you're unable to participate in and you feel Absolutely. less than. That's very true. That's very true. Yep. How did you begin to get involved in, in TED Talks, TEDx Talks? So on the other side of the, the spectrum are those kids who are doing exceptional things for good. Uh, as my, one of my wonderful mentors, Dr. Jenny Stepanek says, one day I said, yeah, I'm, I'm going to jail to work with the worst of the worst. And she looked at me and she goes, maybe they're the best of the best because they have to work that much harder. Amen. Right? Love And I was like, you're absolutely right. I'll never say worst of the worst again. They're the best of the best. They are the heroes. They're fighting against the odds that are stacked up against them in such a way that their successes make them heroes. So Mm -hmm. um, I was teaching a poetry workshop at the Riverdale Country School in the Bronx. And one of the parents came up to me and said, I think what you're doing is amazing. You've got to meet Nancy Hunt of the We Are Family Foundation. Mm-hmm. So I met Nancy and we hit it off and we started working with Dr. Stepanek uh, around her son, Maddie J.T. Stepanek's writing. Okay. He's an 
incredible person if you've never heard of him. He passed mm -hmm. away a number of years ago, a few years ago, um, at the age of 13. Oh my goodness, okay. But he was a hero of Oprah Winfrey. He was a hero of Jerry Lewis. He was a hero of Larry King. Incredible kid. So the last name? Stepanek, S-T-E-P-A-N-E-K. Thank you so much. Well, I can make some introductions for you if you like to. I would love that. Thank yeah. you. So we started doing this thing. Uh, every, it's wonderful talking to you because I get to wind through all the other incredible people in my life. Absolutely. So, and sing their praises. Yes, exactly. So what Nancy did was she was, at the time, we, our family had an initiative called Maddie's Movie Day. Hmm. It's Maddie's Movie Day and Poetry because he was into poetry. So there's another organization called Lollipop Theater. And it's run by a great woman named Evelyn Iacolano. And what Lollipop does is they go to the movie studios and they get the first run films into hospitals to terminally ill or chronically ill children. I love that. So Maddie, when Maddie was really sick toward the end of his life, one of the Harry Potter movies was coming out and he was, wanted to see it. And they were like, it doesn't look like Maddie's going to be alive long enough to... For, for this film when it comes out. So Evelyn and Nancy through lollipop theater got in touch with the studio heads and said, this kid wants to watch this movie. We got to let him watch it. So they brought in security guards. They had them sign releases. They stood in front of this hospital bedroom door and it took him four days to watch the movie. That's how much pain he was in. And he, but he ended up watching the film. He got to watch the film. And part of it was because the mission of Lollipop Theater is that kids will come in to visit their brother, their sibling, their cousin, their sister, who's in the hospital and can't get out. And they'll be like, did you see the new film? And they're like, no, I can't get out of my bed. Yes. So Evelyn's idea was let's bring those films into those kids so they can feel whole in some way. Mm. <clears throat> so that was the center of it. So we, for, yeah, it was beautiful for, for a number of years. We'd go into hospitals with Lollipop and we are family and, Mm. Yeah, we, Evelyn makes movie tickets and gets popcorn and she'll bring celebrities in sometimes. We'll roll out a red carpet, and put a stanchions up, yes. make it feel like a very special and it is moment. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So that was your connection to the, the TEDx. That, well, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. So the connection then was, <laughs> then I got involved with We Are Family Foundation and mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago, nine years ago, We Are Family started TEDx Team. They got okay. the license from TEDx, and because I was already there working with them, it was natural for me to continue to work with TEDx Teen and coach the, the teenagers that come through. That is incredible. Very rewarding, I'm sure. Absolutely. So from there, I mean, you've done so many things. What would you like to highlight that shares your personality? Right now, I'd like to highlight um, <clears throat> a couple things. The Bench, which is my one-person show. Mm -hmm we're taking to Los Angeles in October. Oh, how exciting. That's exciting. And it just did, we did 30, um, 30 weeks here in New York. People are, are responding to it. So that's great. Um, and then the other thing that I'm, that I just completed was a thing called Maddie's deck going back to Maddie's thematic. When I go to jails with kids, one of the things they love is games, competition and games and decks of cards are very important. And it sounds and looks cliche, you know, guys in prison playing cards. But when you got nothing to do all day, you got cards, right? You got mm -hmm. social interaction, competition. 
So what I did was I designed a deck of cards that have inspirational quotes on them. Oh, wow. So that when I leave and I leave the deck of cards, they can read words of inspiration, questions that inspire them to think, and not just have a deck of cards with the king of clubs face on it. Right. And then we, because you can flip a card over, Mm -hmm. let me just see if I have one here with me real quick. Yeah, I would love to see it. I should, but I don't think I do. No, I don't. So, but when you flip a card over, you know, it's, it's playing cards are designed to Mm -hmm. read either way. So we then thought, oh, wait, let's do bilingual. So on the card, it's English and Spanish, 26 of Maddie's quotes out of the book, Just Peace. Wow. It's a book he wrote with Jimmy Carter. He was friends with Jimmy Carter. It's called (laughs) Just Peace. Oh, cool. So uh, Jenny and I went through, I curated 26 quotes that I thought would resonate with these kids. Mm-hmm. Did a crowdfunding and just got delivered three weeks ago, a thousand decks of cards with these inspirations on them. And so this past couple of weeks I've been going in and we've been having a ball with them. We've mm-hmm. been reading them aloud and debating. Is it true? Do you believe that? You know, yeah. What are examples in your life? Right. And right. then, just uh, just past weekend, a kid came to me and said, you know, you were right. I was bored out of my mind. It was late, and I was just laying in bed, thumbing through these cards, reading them. Mm. And, uh, it took my it took me away from being in my prison cell today. Wow. Wow. That is powerful. Yeah. It's powerful. And those are the stories that fuel your passion and your fire. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, and again, knowing, knowing the not knowing that I might leave that deck of cards. One kid might just throw it in the trash. One kid might, you know, try and make a cigarette filter out of it. And then, but one kid might do what he did and say, Hey, it took me out of my pain for a moment. Yes. Yes. So what life experience led you to the bench, a homeless love story? When I was in my twenties and I was early twenties and I was going through that painful yes. time of transitioning from one college to another and dealing with uh, the, the, the abuse that I hadn't dealt with, I had gravitated, <clears throat> excuse me, toward, again, people on the margins. And I overheard a few homeless people over a number of days talking and arguing, and the language was poetic, it was vulgar, and it was also something that made me realize they weren't ghosts floating out there, that they weren't unanchored people, that they had backstories and they had real lives. Previous to when they were homeless and while they were homeless, there was community there. And I was so intrigued by it that I started listening and taking notes. And I was fortunate enough to bartend um, for August Wilson for a six-month period, August Wilson, the playwright. And he would come in and he would be, he used to write his, his notes for his plays on his cocktail napkins. Ah, yes. So um, he, we would, I got a little mini master class with him uh, as a bartender because I was telling him about these homeless people and I was writing and he was giving me, you know, cues and advice on taking fragments and making them bigger or connecting them to a bigger picture. Yes. Uh, and so the, the fragments that I connected were, you know, these guys were discarded. They were on the margins. They were another phrase that I've come up with that I haven't fully exploited yet is instead of the rules were meant to be broken, mm-hmm. broken were meant to be rules. Uh, and I've learned that these broken people, were actually creating ways to cope and thrive that because they were broken created new rules for them to operate out of. 
And I, it, it, it fit right in with where my head was at at the time. Very inspirational. What is, this vi- what is your vision for the show? For the my vision, three things. One, I want people to walk out feeling like that was a, an hour well spent and I, and I see the world differently now. Mm. Two, I have written it into a pilot with a, a writer, Kim Taylor, um, and we want to sell it as a TV show. We think it could be an incredibly Great. awesome, grungy, binge-worthy watching Netflix kind of show. <laughs> yes. Where we can expand on the stories, talk about the social issues around homelessness mm-hmm. and HIV. And then the third is I want to get an agent and get more work as an actor so I can not on a shoestring budget help people, but I can start in turn take whatever strength, notoriety, and money that I get and and create even more opportunities for people on the margins. Love it. That is incredible. Just that um, constant thread in your life of serving others from such a long a long history of, of serving others. Can you just share with us from your heart what for you has been, gosh, the benefit, the, um, the, the fuel to serve others? The fuel, what has been the benefit? For some reason, I don't look at, I, I, don't, I don't look at holidays as, I, 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 I'm going to sound cynical and angry, and I guess I am in some deep-seated ways. When I go in, every time I go into that jail, I feel like I'm working against the oppressive system that we have and not in terms, not specifically mass incarceration. Every time I go in there, I feel like maybe one of these kids will come out of here, do good and show the power structure that they are not all bad. So that while I'm in there on, like I go in on, on father's day, I went in there on mother's day. I went in there Mm. and I'm like on July 4th weekend, I'm in there. I, I want to be there on the days when other people are out lounging and vacationing. Yes. Um, because I feel like that's the exact opposite. And that on some karmic level is balancing things. Yes. While the CEO or the, the global chairman of, the, of wherever is out on his yacht laughing and enjoying it at the expense of others, I am with the others. Yes. Trying to create some kind of balance. Absolutely. Share with us a little bit about um, spirituality for you. For me, spirituality is uh, the trees, the the air, the trees, the sun. Um, Really, uh, I think everybody is God. I think God is within everybody. I'm not religious at all. I was raised religiously. Mm -hmm. I'm not at all anymore. Mm -hmm. I feel like I had to detox from that. I feel like religion has great principles, but it's poisonous to, in my opinion, to um, do things because you are trying to, you're doing things to try to appease somebody else's standards, mm-hmm. or you're doing things to try to achieve uh, enough credits in order to um, earn uh, enlightenment. I think uh, I earn enlightenment every single day on earth. You know, I think that's where it's at. I feel like um, what I, I, I do a lot of gardening on my roof and in this lot Literally. down the street. Yeah. And I was sad at the beginning of when I started doing this because I would clip, they'd say, oh, clip these, clip them. Or the wind would come and it would break a branch off of something. 
Yes. And I'd be like, oh, this thing's going to die. It's terrible. And it would just come back stronger. Mm-hmm. And just like that in my life, when something hurts or is taken from me, I know something bigger, better, and stronger is coming. So as much as it's painful and there's a loss there, something else is on its way. Yes. So yes. There's, that's sort of a thank you. menagerie of my spirituality. Yeah, thank you. As we wrap up, I would like you to share with the audience. Our, our 10 minutes is over already? <laughs> <laughs> I, we could talk all day. I can talk. I, I'm feeling it. <laughs> Many people will listen and say, you know, wow, well, you just have this great life. You know, and I talk to a lot of, of leaders and we talk about the great things they're doing, but I want to always highlight what truly makes you the unsung hero. A hero is your journey. So to those who may feel frustrated right now, what would you say to them about their journey and the ability to serve others in what, whatever way they will? There, that, the first thing is everybody's frustrated everybody feels less. Will Smith looks like he's got the perfect life. I'm sure there are days, moments in every single day where Will Smith feels less than. And I bring him up because he's got a great smile and he's always buoyant. Yes. Beautiful life, kids. (laughs) Yeah. Living the life. I I am certain that if you were close to Will Smith as a friend or a family member, you would know that he's just like you and he suffers just like you. And he struggles just like you, just like me. So um, that's, that's one of the keys to it all is that everybody, and again, that's what I remember from when I looked out my window and, you know, here we are in a beautiful green street, dead-end cul-de-sac, you know, and inside there's a horror going on. Yes. Right? And that's life, you know. There is greatness everywhere, and yet at the same time there's horror. And people will try to make it feel like everything's great and you should be happy all the time. And it's not going to be that way. It's just not going to be that. Absolutely. Thank you. If you were to write a thank you letter to someone or a couple of people, who would you write that letter to? I would write it to a couple of people. I'd write it to my aunt that Mm -hmm. I told you about, Aunt Minna, Minna Melrose. I'd write it to my uncle Zeke, her husband. They were, they were just about giving to people. My dad, who would wake up at three in the morning and deliver prescriptions to people because mm-hmm. they were in need, and that's what he did. My mom, who is completely supportive and nurturing of everything I do and gave me the go-ahead to step into the theater, to join the circus. So I think it's those, those mentors that are, have supported my risk. Mm-hmm. The people who have supported my risk are the people that I thank Beautiful. Share with us, Robert, if someone wants to get a hold of you or would like to follow you, support your causes, how can they do that? I'm all over Facebook. So it's Robert Galinsky on Facebook or the Galinsky Volunteer Vanguard on Facebook. Um, They can email me at galinskynow, G-A-L-I-N-S-K-Y-N-O-W at gmail.com. Those two are my main portals. I'm on Instagram and whatnot, but those two are the two places to connect with me. Okay. In terms of your services around coaching, can you speak to us for a moment and what type of clientele you look for? Sure. Galinskycoaching.com is the website. I do a wide array of coaching. I coach actors that have last minute auditions. I coach uh, teenagers in jail who have to go talk in front of a judge. Mm. Uh, I coach, I have got a couple of great clients, uh, 
uh, Dr. Alice Wilder, who's one of the co-creators of Blue's Clues. Yes. Like a rock star to me, Blue's Clues. Yes. She has to make presentations constantly, so I work with her on her text, on her writing, on her delivery. Um, Sometimes it's just delivery. She's got something done. So it's it's a wider range. What it always comes down to, Christy, is being comfortable so you can be confident and deliver your message. That's, it doesn't matter. I had, I had one day I worked with, uh, again, I worked with teenagers at Rikers Island. And then later in the afternoon, I was at Citibank working with CEOs. Hmm. Same yeah. exact principles. So it doesn't really matter the population. It's just a matter of you got a message. Let's clarify it. Let's get you comfortable so you're confident and you can deliver that message. That's the most important thing. Wonderful. Thank you, Robert, so much. Your demonstration of heroism by telling your story will save a life. Thank you. I'm so grateful you let me express and be vulnerable with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, Conversations of Influence and Change. Each show, we bring you a guest of revolutionary influence by living a life of nobility, courage, and authenticity. To meet other Knights of the Round Table or to be a guest on this show, go to ChristyKnights.com. Join us next week as we cross the bridge to meet the next Knight to join the Round Table of Revolutionary Leaders of Influence and Change. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.